Well, hi folks, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. Today, this is Ken and Charlie, joined by our good friend, Phil Chone. Um, Phil has been on the podcast, is it once or twice so far, Phil? Just once, right at the beginning. I think uh, episode 11. That was actually one of our most popular uh, episodes ever, so uh, thanks yeah, for that. Yeah, people often mention those stories that you told, so yeah. Expectations are high for this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just pressure, back to try to, yeah, <laughs> just back to try to bring up the ratings <laughs> for the end of the second <laughs> season. Yeah. Just want to say quickly, uh, congratulations, Phil. I, I believe you're the number one e-birder this year. You've seen more birds in the world than anyone else this year, which is pretty impressive. It's really good to be back traveling again. Um, I think I've already <laughs> yeah. been to about. 12 or 15 countries so far and only half of those have been on layovers so uh <laughs> good good start really good start um no you've seen like almost 1900 species just this year so far it's just pretty amazing wow and a good chunk of them have been lifers too which is nice um <laughs> get to good. <laughs> yeah check out some new new <laughs> corners of the world there's no way i'm catching you now i'm like 300 behind so but uh yeah <laughs> well it depends on where you go for the rest of the year i've got a a little bit of the slow summer i'm not not picking oh, up nice. not picking up a whole lot of new birds right now in in central texas so oh maybe a chance yeah <laughs> well the reason that we've uh, invited phil on the podcast today is to do the next in our series of global habitats favorite global habitats so Phil was one of our co-authors on this book, The Wildlife Habitats of the World. And Phil wrote the section on North America slash part of Central America. That was that the biogeographic boundary, I guess, is... Uh, what, what was our boundary, Phil? Was it in Panama or further north? No, it was in Mexico, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The end of the, the Nearctic biogeographic region is generally somewhere around southern Mexico. Um, Yucatan is generally treated as neotropical, but um, the line's kind of blurry. So I think we just used Mexico as the, the cutoff. I really liked Phil's uh, text for North America. It's really, really well done, and it's been really well received, the book in general and the North America stuff in particular. So Phil is the perfect person to be talking about his favorite uh, what is it? Nearctic habitats. Uh, it's kind of a greater North America. So he has assembled with great suffering and agonizing. He has <laughs> assembled a, a list of his top five. Now, I think, Phil, you mentioned that you could could have had a completely different list from top to bottom that you could have made a strong case for. So basically, there's lots of cool habitats in, in the continent. Yeah, absolutely. Settle in. Uh, this is going to be a three and a half hour podcast where I'm going to go through my 25 <laughs> favorite habitats. So uh, use the bathroom now if you have to. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to kick things off with a habitat that's quite familiar to me from I spent um, parts of about seven or eight years of my life out in the Intermountain West doing bird surveys every summer. So Phil's number five of his top five habitats is shortgrass prairie with uh, exemplar spot being Pawnee National Grasslands in Colorado. This is kind of one of the starkest habitats in North America. 
I mean, it's a really dry grassland. Um, where you, you have this gradient going east to west where you start with the tall grass prairies and as you get farther west towards the Rockies, they get shorter and shorter, different mix of species too. But by the time you get out to like eastern Wyoming or eastern Colorado, the grass is often only a couple inches high, really hot, dry summers, really cold, often snowy winters, brutal thunderstorms will roll in. I mean, it's a high, high step. Wind's kind of like uh, windy habitat. It's like the Mongolia of North America, right? <laughs> it kind of has a shocking amount of of wildlife, and it's also surprising how well things can hide in such an open habitat. I mean, I've worked on field sites out there where I've been on the same small plot every day for weeks, and you keep turning up new things that you would think would be obvious with no real cover. I mean, there's swift fox dens and American badgers and mountain plovers. Uh, You have these great skylarking displays from thick-billed longspur. It's a habitat that... It's something that you have to look at up close to really appreciate. I mean, it doesn't have this, this grandeur of some of the habitats of the Mountain West, but it still has a lot of a lot of secrets and a lot of things to kind of tease out over a long period of time. Yeah, it's just so open. There's something just refreshing and exhilarating about being in such an open habitat. I mean, I remember I did hundreds of point count transect surveys in uh, shortgrass prairie in Wyoming and Colorado and some in uh, the Dakotas as well. But I remember one of the first ones I ever did you, you sort of get to what's called the access point for the survey and then you start walking and you basically walk in a straight line for about three miles. So I did this whole survey. This took hours. You know, I was, I was tallying dozens of meadowlarks and horned larks and stuff. And I just, you know, I walked straight in that direction for, for like three hours and I, I'll never forget turning around and looking back and seeing my car. It, it was just so odd to have walked for that long and to, to that my vehicle was still visible. It's just emblematic of how open it is. It was kind of weirdly disconcerting. I know some of the flatter places in Canada, they have all these jokes about if your wife leaves you, you can still see her leaving you days later. <laughs> it's just so flat. <laughs> uh, so, Phil, how many Western meadowlark nests have you seen? Maybe two. For a bird that's absolutely everywhere, I mean. Yep. So I did probably a couple hundred of these surveys. So this entails, you know, I walked hundreds and hundreds of miles through shortgrass prairie during the height of the breeding season when western meadowlark is one of the most common birds. And western meadowlark, for people who don't know, this is a big, chunky, almost quail-sized, I guess it's a blackbird with a yellow breast, and it's ground-dwelling and ground-nesting. But they conceal their nests unbelievably well in, in shortgrass prairie. Despite the grass only being like six inches tall, Somehow, it's almost impossible to find their nests, and I never found a single western meadowlark nest, despite <laughs> spending hours searching. Just crazy. Yeah, you know, I did a, a whole season that was just nest searching for horned larks and thick-billed longspur and mountain plover, and I found quite a few uh, horned lark and, and longspur nests um, by figuring out where to look. And this was in Wyoming, and it's maybe, maybe the shortest the short grass gets. I mean, there was, 
there was really nothing there and it was a lot of bare ground and the place to look for these nests they were also ground nesting birds was on the the leeward side of a cow patty so you'd have these big <laughs> big piles of cow droppings that were maybe two or three inches high and that was the best cover from the wind that that there was out there and so you'd find these little <laughs> little cup nests tucked up against them kind of sheltering from the the winds that were howling through all year round so are prairie chickens found in this habitat oh yeah yep i guess when you do your little chicken run down in is it colorado i guess uh, colorado yep that's some of the big targets yeah greater prairie chicken in northeast colorado is one of the when people try to see all these different North American grouse. They're really some of my favorite birds, I think, in North America. I've, I've only actually seen a couple now, but um, I've seen the sage grouse and the, and the greater prairie chicken. But they're, they're really mind-blowing, these little leks that they make and the little dances and displays that they do. I just find them fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a really wild variety of sounds. I mean, you don't think of mm. game birds or, you know, galliforms as, as being being birds with a big vocal range, but hanging out with lesser prairie chickens. I mean, there's 20 or 30 different little sounds that they're making, and some are some are vocal and some are mechanical, you know, like popping air sacs and slapping wings and drumming feet on the ground. And, um, and they have these weird exposed patches of skin, don't they? Both on the side of the neck and these these eyebrows, these big combs that kind of... You can see the combs get like bigger and more intensely colored when they're really having a... You sent an email around or a message around to some of us um, and it was a close-up of this skin. <laughs> and we were all like, what on earth is that? And we were like, is that part of your body? Like, are you... <laughs> yeah, and it was... <laughs> and yeah, but finally you told us what it was, but we thought you had some really kind of nasty kind of skin problem with a part of your body. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't send uh, people close-ups of dusky grouse with the with the caption. Does this look infected? It it doesn't go over well. The answer is yes. <laughs> I would definitely encourage people who have never seen this to just just go on YouTube and and search for prairie chicken display or prairie chicken dance. Oh, it is just mind blowing. I yeah. mean. It is every bit as cool as, as the Birds of Paradise in, in New Guinea or in Northern Australia. It's just world-class, awesome, amazing spectacle. But hey, we have some a few habitats to cover here, or uh, we've yep. what, got 26 more to go. So let's move on to the next one, uh, which is number four, <laughs> which is Nearctic Spruce fir Taiga. This is an enormous there's an enormous band of this habitat that runs actually all the way around the northern part of the entire globe it's, it's probably the world's greatest wilderness is, is this this taiga or boreal forest band but the site that phil chose to highlight is one of the southern outposts of it which is the Saxim bog in minnesota this is just an enormous swath of forest of, of pretty unbroken continuous habitat and it just barely makes its way into the kind of the very northern reaches of the the eastern u.s um upper peninsula michigan the very northern parts of of minnesota a little bit in maybe maine um whereas in canada i mean you get a couple hundred miles north of the border and it's sort of like just pick any road 
that exists up there and which is not a whole lot and there it is yeah i mean it's the classic sort of north woods tons of water tons of bogs just really dense dense coniferous forest there's lynx and moose and fishers and martens and wolves and thousands of breeding birds in the i mean just it's an insanely productive habitat in the summer a lot of insects that help that along but i mean just bogs teeming with warblers and flycatchers and you know things like canada warbler and morning warbler and connecticut warbler all all breeding up there I think the residents are maybe the biggest draw, though. You know, like the short grass prairie or high alpine areas. There's, I don't know, there's some sort of real mystique to animals that are are able to eke out a living in these places that humans consider incredibly harsh. Somewhere where if you're outside without the proper gear for a couple of hours, you're, you're sort of done for, but got these right. little things like boreal chickadees that insects in bog one of the popular feeders is just to hang up part of a deer carcass after deer hunting season and so in winter you have these like deer rib cages hanging along the side of the road and you'll have all these little chickadees there just like pulling scraps of meat off them and it kind of gives them a, a, whole, a whole new impression to these little birds <laughs> what do people hang a carcass up for uh, as a bird feeder kidding no, like after after uh, you've butchered a deer, you can hang up like an old, an old deer rib cage, and you see it a lot in the North Woods. Um, we'll have like hairy woodpeckers, and sometimes uh, short-tailed weasels and things like that will come in and get little bits of meat and fat from that. They'll just get covered in maggots. Yeah, too cold. It's a whole different kind of bird feeding than your uh, seedless black oil sunflower <laughs> in a nice little plastic tube. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the faint-hearted. I guess Sac Zim is very famous for owls, isn't it, in winter? It's probably the most reliable spot in the United States to see great gray owl. They breed there in small numbers. Northern hawk owls there throughout the winter most years. There's probably boreal owls around every year in some capacity, but whether or not anybody finds one is a, is another story. I mean, that's a really really tough bird to track down uh, nearby in more open areas there's there's snowy owls a lot of the time so it can attract a big crowd there's a kind of an equivalent to the the Neartic spruce fir taiga montane spruce fir forest which is kind of high elevations in the northern rockies and that also gets a lot of similar birds so that's around around like yellowstone or glacier at, at higher elevations I guess some years you get these events where you have a lot more owls. I know uh, Ken has mentioned this in a previous podcast, um, going up to see massive numbers of, of great gray owls. Yeah, that was one of my all lifetime birding highlights was there was an exceptional year in the early 2000s when there were just hundreds and hundreds of great gray owls. It was almost spooky. They were just like, you just drive along the road and you just <laughs> see that there's one. If you drive two minutes, there's one. That was incredible. Wow. Yeah, that was that was kind of a a once in a lifetime event, and it was about six months before I got my driver's license. So uh, I'll have to <laughs> have to take Ken's word for it on that one. But so the but, uh, the deepest I've been into this habitat was up in northern Manitoba. I I volunteered to do some work 
for the Manitoba Breeding Bird Atlas a few years ago, and that was quite an adventure in many ways. That could actually be a whole podcast at some point, but uh, one thing that really struck me up there, there, there's one road that goes up to northern Manitoba, and I guess it's mainly for hydroelectric power generation to, to run all this hydropower in northern Manitoba. But so I basically, I got dropped off on a, at a lake in northern Manitoba off this highway, and then I, I canoed back like 20 miles and was doing breeding bird surveys. And I realized at some point, well, actually, I was speculating about like, I wonder if I walked west and north where I would hit a road, where would be the next road. And I actually looked carefully at North American maps and I realized the next road I would hit would be somewhere up in, in Arctic Alaska in some oil fields up there. So this is like, I don't know, 1,500 miles <laughs> of literally trackless wilderness that I was I was plunging into. It was really, you know, I, I don't think people underappreciate just how big and wild that boreal forest is. It, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's... Uh... There's something reassuring knowing that there's there's still places like that. I mean, so close to home too. Just uh, you guys see any wolves or anything up there? Wolves, bears? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the global stronghold of wolves for sure, and and I guess bears as well. Yeah, I mean the the last time I was in in Saxim for a tour, um, I didn't see any wolves directly, but there was a spot on the road I'd driven by a few times. And the next day I came back and there was just this chasm where, you know, an animal had dug a really sizable hole about eight feet down into the snow. And I guess a, there was a there was a deer carcass that had been stashed down there some point earlier in the winter. And these wolves had just dug a tunnel straight down to it and pulled out whatever was left in the night and taken it off. And it was, I don't know, sometimes you don't get to see an animal, but there's something really really nice about knowing that you're sharing space with that and kind of seeing that they're around or almost not getting to see them can be more interesting like having these these sort of phantoms out there yeah totally sure well speaking of phantoms i mean that's the stronghold of uh lynx right which i've never seen i don't know if you have phil it's this this kind of medium-sized cat that punches way above its weight you know they'll kill ridiculously large animals sometimes they're just remarkably ferocious predators big long tufty ears and like big snowshoe feet just an amazing animal something i would love to see yep i've seen about three square inches of a lynx um (laughs) it was kind of heartbreaking i had had a, a pair of very long tufted ears in the top of a head sort of just just poke up over a, a snowbank and then drop back down, and I waited quietly for it to come out, and nothing. I never saw anything again. That was sort of it, which is, you know. Hey, I'd, I would take it. I'd still be happy to see those tufts. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. It's no, probably it's... the best three inches of the. <laughs> <laughs> That's only about half of the tuft if you only saw three inches. Right, I know it's uh, not a lot to go on, but you know, a tick is a tick. There are mammal watching communities that are developing that are, you know, like even as more fanatical than birders, if you can believe that. But people in these communities seem to pretty consistently see lynx up in that Saxim area in winter. But they basically just spent a week driving roads at night. 
and then eventually see it. Right. So if you're really patient and can tolerate cold weather and lots of driving around on icy roads at night, I guess that's a decent way to see lynx. You know, every once in a while, they'll just pop up in these really uncharacteristic ways, especially in Alaska. I remember a, a news article in Anchorage a few years ago where somebody in a suburb had a, a whole family of lynx show up on their porch one morning and it was a good, it was a good year for food. And so it was like a, a mother and six nearly fully grown kittens. So it just looked like a whole, a whole pack wow. of lynx just kind of wandering around on their deck for 45 <laughs> minutes in the morning. And <laughs> Well, let's move on to Phil's number three habitat. This, this is one that's very close to home for Phil. He's from Ohio, I guess. And this is the New Arctic Temperate Deciduous Forest. This is just kind of your classic northeastern United States woods, right? And and then your your, I guess your favorite spot within this habitat is uh, Shawnee State Forest in Ohio, a place I've never been, although it's pretty close to where my parents live in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean, I that's just a spot that I like. I really like a lot of the areas of the the Appalachians throughout Kentucky and and West Virginia and down into the Smoky Mountains. This is sort of the the habitat I, I grew up with when I had the chance to leave the city and go out into the woods. This is what it was and it, it feels familiar and there's you know something sort of prosaic about it, but it kind of gets like familiarity breeds contempt or I don't know. I just feel like it feels very blase to people who have spent a huge amount of time in it and it's not really thought of as as a destination for for nature or wildlife in a lot of ways on a global scale but it's pretty special you know it's got the highest diversity of of salamanders in the world is in in this habitat in the eastern united states i mean mm-hmm. i think 120 plus species they keep splitting them all the time wow. so probably 150 by now but i mean that's a pretty large percentage of all the salamanders in the world. Dragonflies, right? It's major Dragonflies. center of diversity for odonates. Yeah, and I'd say like some of those large forest moths in the east rival any big silk moths that you'd see in other parts of the world. I mean, imperial moths and luna moths and cecropia moths. And then not even to mention getting a really nice suite of, of breeding warblers in the summer. Last time I was in Shawnee, cerulean warbler was the most common bird I heard there, I think. Uh, just dozens, dozens yeah. Uh, we ended up finding a nest that was right at eye level off the overlook behind the hotel. I mean, there's this gazebo, and this is a bird that usually nests way up in the canopy, but there's a female that was going underneath this little building and grabbing bits of spider web and building the nest right at eye level in front of us and i mean that's a i'd say a really really major target bird for anyone visiting the eastern united states in spring or summer and just kind of getting to the point where you're ignoring them to look for other things is a a pretty special experience i guess this is the same habitat that you get around mcgee marsh that we that we bird in spring as well right there is some of this around mcgee marsh especially more towards the toledo side of things and Okay. Some of those metro parks right along the lake is a little more freshwater 
um, kind of swamp forest that's dominated cottonwoods, by right a lot of cottonwoods, cottonwoods and right. dogwood and button bush understory. I don't think there's a habitat in the world that undergoes a more remarkable and striking transformation over the course of a, a year than this habitat. It really, like in the middle of winter, it looks almost post-apocalyptic in a way. You know, it's like something out of <laughs> Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Like, there's there's nothing green. Maybe little hints no, in the understory, but that's often covered in snow. And there's just, you know, the, the deciduous trees totally lose their leaves. There's no pine or conifers in a lot of parts of this habitat. And it's just kind of gray tree trunks and, you know, white snow or gray slush and rocks. And, I mean, it just looks like there can't possibly be anything living here. But then it transforms over the course of about six weeks into something that is pretty close to like a rainforest and i've actually read that this eastern deciduous forest it has the same density of living things as the amazon rainforest in summer so it doesn't have the same diversity obviously but it has the same density between migrating birds and insects and uh, amphibians and stuff i mean it's just mind-bending that that amount of of living things kind of spring up or migrate in in that short a period of time. And you have these big cyclical boom and bust cycles. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been out east during one of the big periodic cicada hatches. Um, oh, yeah. That's just an incredible thing to be around for. And then the fall, too. Totally. I mean, uh, again, you get kind of numb to the, the sort of display of fall colors that you get there. But it really is pretty spectacular on a global scale. I mean, heading out to the western U.S. and being in the Rockies and people being like, oh yeah, this is a, it's a really great place for fall color. And you go out and there's there's a little patch of aspens and it's yellow. <laughs> that's that's really nice for you. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that just compared to the Northeast, just all these bright orange and scarlet and yellow and just going on for miles over rolling hills is yeah, that is it's up there as a great natural spectacle in its own right, just the autumn colors in, in deciduous forest. Before we move on to Phil's top two favorite habitats in this region, we're going to have a brief diversion to, uh, this was actually Phil's idea, to ask each, peop- each of the people that we interview, <laughs> what is their least favorite habitat in the region? So Phil, what is your least favorite uh, New Arctic habitat? It took some time. Um, I had a hard time not giving this to the Pacific Chaparral in Southern California just because not everything there is perfect. But um, (laughs) Lodgepole Pine Forest, I think, has to be my go-to. This is kind of a successional habitat, mostly in the northern Rockies. It kind of pops up after after fires um, or sometimes after an avalanche. Um, But it's... Also really prone to fire and prone to massive die-offs in the trees. And you have all these little, just thin, straight, even-aged pines that have a a much lower both number of species and number of individuals compared to every habitat around them. And I think it's just, it's absolutely nightmarish to, to try to move through. I don't know if you ever played pickup sticks as a kid where you've got, you know, like a big big pile of little sticks and you throw them on the ground and you have to try to try to pull pull them out without collapsing the stack but it's just kind of like if you could walk through that for 10 miles um. 
Before we started recording, I was telling Phil and Charlie that I did a, a bird survey in Lodgepole Pine once. This was burned Lodgepole Pine in Yellowstone National Park. So essentially the habitat had transformed into this like jumbled matrix of downed, burned, blackened trees. And I, without exaggeration, I did not touch the ground for over a mile of the survey. So I was, I was just walking over and through and on downed trees and then standing on downed trees to do my, my point counts like every uh, 500 meters and then continuing to the next point. And wow, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was hellish. And not only was it just like climbing through this, this matrix, but the trees were blackened, like deeply blackened, you know? Like you have to burn a, a lodgepole pretty severely to, to kill it. So th there's like two inches of ash on the outside of these trees. So, you know, I was just covered head to toe with, with ash by the time I finished this survey. It, I mean, it was just pretty much the worst bird survey you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I had a, I had a pretty similar experience. I don't know what it, if it had been beetle kill or a windstorm, but it was the same thing where just huge numbers of dead and down trees, but they hadn't been burned. And I went to do this survey. It was early June in northern Montana, which means that there had just been a little bit of an ice storm the night before. You know, it had rained and then that had frozen. And so these things were all covered in a little sheet of ice. And uh, <laughs> if you meet me in person, uh, you'll understand that I'm probably significantly less less nimble than Ken is. And uh, in, <laughs> in the course of the morning, I managed to wipe out pretty spectacularly about six times and uh cracked a rib on each side of my rib cage so jeez <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, i think there was 16 points on the survey that i was supposed to do and i i completed about six of them and then and then went back to like yeah. yeah 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 <laughs> Phil, do you have any idea why there is, is such low diversity and density of wildlife in Lodgepole? I've never been sure of why. It's a monoculture for the most part, which never helps. I mean, these very, I feel like successionally adapted species. I guess there's a, a chipmunk named after Lodgepole, right? Lodgepole chipmunk. Yeah, I mean, there's it, it is a component of of healthy kind of mid to high elevation forests in the west sometimes too but it is a pretty good habitat for for chipmunks there's it usually has a lot of a lot of dead trees there so it's good for woodpeckers i'd say it has more woodpeckers than the average forest and some of these burdened stands of lodgepole in montana and farther north are a really good place to look for uh northern hawk owl that's where i found a couple of northern hawk owl nests so it's not all bad. I mean, every habitat's got something redeeming, but if I had to pick a least favorite, um, <laughs> fair, fair enough. I think I think the density that it comes up with when it first grows back in also probably has to do with the lack of diversity. I mean, you don't have any kind of shrubby understory that comes back like you would in most most burned regeneration areas, right? You'd normally have a lot of ceanothus or some sort of other flowering deciduous shrub that is really good food for insects and therefore other things what i find odd is that you get 
stands of ponderosa pine that are structurally very similar to lodgepole, but they always just seem to have way more wildlife, <clears throat> certainly way more birds, more individuals, way, way higher diversity. I don't know, maybe it's more open, as you say, more sunlight getting in, more stuff in the understory, maybe that makes a difference. Right, and that, I think those ponderosa stands tend to be a little lower in elevation too, right? And I feel like as True, just as right. you get warmer, yeah, I'd always rather be in ponderosa forest than in in lodgepole. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, let's move up to Phil's second favorite uh, North American habitat or Neoctic habitat, and this is boggy tundra as uh, experienced in a place that I'm not quite sure I'm qualified to pronounce, somewhere near Barrow, Alaska. Never been to Alaska, <laughs> so keen to hear about this place. Give it a go, Ken. Utkiagvik. <laughs> Utkiagvik, yeah. Um, Utkiagvik is, is Barrow, so the town officially changed the name, I think, about 10 years ago. Okay. But yeah, it's the same same area. It's the northernmost point in the United States. It's on a low coastal plain in the very very northern part of Alaska, um, above well above the Arctic Circle. And I had the chance to go there twice last year during during two different seasons, and absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, if you want to talk about a short summer, that's we were there in early early to mid June, and there was still plenty of snow and ice on the ground. Birds were already back in good numbers, but it definitely wasn't the middle of summer. I'd say snow-free summer up there lasts about six weeks, but it's spectacular. I mean, it's uh, it's just wet, grassy areas dotted with all these little lakes, and every puddle you could find is is packed with breeding, breeding ducks and shorebirds, um, and just getting to see see these species completely transformed i think uh it's kind of a life-altering experience in terms of how you think of birds like i didn't understand what dunlin were capable of until i got up there (laughs) (laughs) you just see these little gray birds sitting way out on a mud flat most of the time and they're they're fun to watch and they scurry around and poke in the mud but you get to see them in in the arctic and it's two in the morning and there's this great golden glow in the sky and You've got this bird that's now got this black belly and this brick red back, and it's just flying around, hovering over the tundra and singing for for minutes on end. I mean, they've all got these incredible displays and all this personality and energy, and they're just putting everything they've got into these these few weeks of uh, of never ending sunshine. Displaying night and day, I guess, and or there's not much night, so essentially they're just displaying without cessation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the midnight sun is worth it alone. I mean, you, I would go out there and after people went to bed, I'd go sit, just go sit in a puddle somewhere and like a little lake that has stellar ziders breeding on it. And you would watch the sun get to its lowest point around 2.30 in the morning and it would still be you know, 15 degrees above the horizon. And then it would just start going back up. And uh, <laughs> Wow. I've never been to Alaska, but I think that's what I would be most keen to see would be some of these idas that are there. It's really spectacular ducks. Yeah, I mean, these yeah. really small little ponds can have spectacled and stellars and king eiders all, all, on, one pond. all on one little yeah. pond. Yeah, and they're really approachable and the light's great. And 
Um, these are, for people who don't know, these are just some of the best looking, they're these big robust ducks. ducks and they just look like they're carved out of marble or something or like, and then with like jewels <laughs> encrusted. They're just like ridiculously ornate and gorgeous and, and hefty. So Phil, how is it, uh, I guess you've guided some tours up there. I mean, it sounds like you could completely exhaust yourself. It's like you, you would, would never want to, you would want to <laughs> keep the same schedule as the Dunlin and just like never sleep. How do you, how do you handle that? I just don't sleep, honestly, like when I'm up there, but <laughs> it really kind of tailor your day to, I, I'm only up there for four or five days. I don't know what I would do if I spent a summer up there. I'd probably pass out in the middle of the road at some point. And, <laughs> but, no, I mean, you really kind of tailor your day to what you want to do. The light's better, probably best between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. And so if I was up there for photography, I would probably sleep mostly during the middle of the day and then wake up later in the evening, have dinner, go out and photograph until breakfast time, have breakfast, and then then go to bed. <laughs> but I think you just, you pick whatever 12 or 16 or 20 hours during the day that you want to be active and you just, just go for it. I don't know how the birds do it. I guided a tour in, in Iceland a few years back and it was just, it was absolutely wonderful, but it was also just deeply disconcerting in some way, this almost nonstop sunlight, because I've just been guiding for so long in the tropics where your days vary between 11 and 13 hours. And just like that was essentially my mental model of guiding is, you know, something where you've got a 11 to 13 hour night. And it was just weird, like to be to go to bed and the sun is still up. I mean, it just felt like wrong. Like I was shirking yeah. my duties or something. I was like, well, but it, like how it's a strange thing. People also have to get their rest. It's odd, although it's uh, wonderful. Yeah, you got it. Uh, last year in early October, I went up uh, to do a short, a short custom tour looking for Ross's gull, and that was kind of the opposite experience. By mid-October, you've got about six hours of daylight, and so you'd have breakfast at 9.30 or so, it would be light by 10.30, you would go out and you would sea watch or drive around town and see if there was anything else around, and um, then go sea watch some more, and then by 3.30 or 4, it would be getting dark and you could call it a day. Um, For dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of sleep. Lots of sleep. I wonder if you lived up there year round, if you would somehow on, on the scale of a year kind of adapt and like not sleep very much in the summer and then just kind of half hibernate in the winter, just sleep like 11, 12 hours a night or something. I, I don't know. I know places that have very short days in winter or no, you know, no, uh, you know, not much uh, light in winter. There's kind of depression and alcoholism and things like that get quite serious. Yeah, I, I grew up in Cleveland. I know what that's like. <laughs> You've got at least, uh, what, eight hours of sunlight a day there? Well, yeah. gray, vague mm-hmm. illumination, just, I should say. Yeah, just filtering through the clouds as you get, you know, <laughs> 37 degree snow that immediately turns into slush and then water. Um <laughs> Hey, I thought that was in the magical in the Arctic temperate deciduous forest. It's its own kind of magic. There's lots of kinds of magic, Ken. 
Uh, well, it's time for the grand finale. Uh, Phil's favorite Nearctic habitat. I hope everyone's ready. This is a good one. This is uh, Madrean Pine Oak Woodland. As seen, for example, on the Durango Highway of uh, Western Mexico. Yeah, all right. So I really had to hold back for, you know, I knew the Neotropic episode was coming up and I had to make this not entirely about Mexico. I could easily turn this uh, whole episode into a, a plug for going to Mexico. If you live in the United States or anywhere close, go to Mexico, go to Mexico, go to Mexico. I mean, I've been a lot of places and it's close to my favorite birding on the planet. And this habitat has a lot of the best of the best. This is kind of the mid to upper elevation forest in most of the, the drier parts of, of Mexico. It gets just barely into southeastern Arizona, which is where most people in the U.S. are familiar with it from. And it's it's the Chiricahuas are a particularly beautiful mountain range. I'd say even you know if they were in Mexico, they would still be one of the more spectacular patches of of this habitat in the country. But in terms of the bird life, you don't need to hop on a plane and you know, go chase a, a crescent-chested warbler that's breeding in Rucker Canyon. Just go two hours south, and they're they're all over. Go to Mexico. Yeah, in go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, it's, it tends to be a really pleasant habitat in terms of climate. It's a really open forest. It's pretty easy to bird. It's tall, but it's not too tall. It tends to be shady. Uh, you kind of have taller pines, and then usually a, like a mid-story of oaks and uh, some really spectacular endemics. I'd say in Mexico, most of the endemism is more more geography-driven than habitat-driven. I mean, you've got three major ranges of the, of the Sierra Madre. You've got the transvolcanic belt. You've got all these incredible stratovolcanoes, including the second second highest peak in North America is not too far from Mexico City. Orizaba, right? Yeah. It's like 19,000 feet or something. It's, Pico Orizaba. Yeah. Crazy mountain. Like a, a beautiful cone. It's like a, a, you know, a mountain that a kid draws or something. Yeah, exactly. And it's also what drives that incredible raptor migration in Veracruz. Kind of creates a, a choke point that funnels raptors to the coast. Um, I guess some of the real highlight birds from Madrean Pine Oak Forest are red-faced warbler, red warbler, tufted jay, eared quetzal, thick-billed parrot, which is like a cool high elevation miniature macaw that feeds on pine cones. (laughs) That was a big, they actually migrate, don't they? They sort of head further north to the pine forest to breed. Yeah, I think they mostly breed in kind of central southern Chihuahua and then what head da- head down towards Colima, like around around Guadalajara for the winter. I've looked for that bird in multiple locations, you know, both in breeding and, and, and non-breeding and missed it everywhere. I think they were sort of en route. There's not too many parrots that migrate, but yeah, this one, this is one. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really cool habitat. I went up there. Last summer, I was living in southeastern Arizona and just hopped in the car and drove 10 hours south to finally go see them breeding. And at right. this point, they're only nesting in these 
big stands of aspen up at the top because um, it's the only wood left that's that's soft enough for them to excavate for nests. They're right. they're doing nest boxes, huh. but they used to be really closely tied with imperial woodpeckers for creating nesting cavities. And now right. that now that imperial woodpeckers extinct, um, they don't have these big cavities in pine trees to use anymore. So they have to use the aspens. I guess there's not much kind of old growth pine either. A lot of those bigger trees would have been taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. People go on about ivory billed woodpeckers quite a lot, but uh, yeah, I mean, Imperial were, I think, were they they're not even bigger? Significantly bigger. Yep. Yeah, like. Yeah, spectacular, huge woodpecker. So I'm curious, Phil, where would this pine oak woodland rate if you were doing a global top five habitats list? Would it be your favorite in the whole world <laughs> or, or would it make it to the top five? I mean, I know this is, this is a tough question. Wow. Um, I would say it's top 10 it's like it's it's definitely six or seven it probably edges into the the top five i'm um on a global scale i know what i like and it's tends to be these these dry deciduous forests things like the the thorny forests and spiny forests in madagascar and um like dry deciduous forest in the the tomb base region and in ecuador and you know some of that dry dip terracarp forest in Thailand. Uh, it's it's neat to have tropical habitats that still have that kind of seasonal transformation um, in a really stark way. And the birding's really easy. And I'm not a very good birder, and I'm a little lazy. So like, <laughs> <laughs> like any anywhere where you can go out and you're like, how do I find the ant pitta? And you're like, oh, I just listen for the loud crunching in the place with no leaves. That's uh, that's right up my, right up my alley. There's that uh, Jorupe in southern Ecuador, this deciduous forest where they very meticulously every day rake the path so that you can walk silently through the forest. But right, that's exactly how you find many of the birds, right? Is you just listen for the crunchy leaves. <laughs> it's a great place. So Phil, we've, we've done this uh, global wildlife habitats book. I am now working on an Africa specific continent guide and I believe you're doing the same for for the North America or the New Arctic, right? Yep, yep. Doing the the same thing for the New Arctic, getting to add in a few things that you know I'd had hoped to add in the first first section and just didn't have space. And so that's pretty exciting to to get to expand upon it and kind of revisit it and reagonize over a lot of these habitat <laughs> designations and like. <laughs> So for Africa, we're approximately doubling the number of habitats that we cover. Is it about the same for your region or, or not quite that many new ones? Um, I think not quite that many additions. I was already kind of pushing the upper page limits on the last one. I think I might have, despite it being maybe the least, least species-rich area in the world, I, I feel like I might have had close to the upper limits for for the number of habitats in the last yep. volume yeah more than your fair share yeah more, exactly i was more <laughs> than my fair share a lot of different pine forests but definitely expanding some wetland habitats which is going to be nice to treat some of the more aquatic things better and adding more sections about conservation in each habitat and fire regimes and all these other kind of 
interesting aspects that we didn't really get to touch on much in the last volume. Probably get to expand a little bit more on the wildlife, give some more details, because, you know, we were pretty short on space in the last one. It's a pretty sweet scenario to have the first book do well enough that we can actually do a whole book about each continent. It's almost like having this a redo where the things that you kind of regretted in the first book or you just felt like you gave short shrift to, you can uh, you can remedy. Uh, I, I've also just found it really gratifying and, and fun. I was traveling recently in California and one of my biggest regrets was that I didn't take this book along with me. You know, I, I kind of got out there and I was like, you know, I don't know anything about this habitat and I would actually quite like to. So I think when you're traveling to a new place that you're unfamiliar with, it's certainly a good idea to bring the book along and, uh, and learn a little bit about the place that you're, you're getting to know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a, a good prospect of my guiding an Argentina trip later this year. And the first thing I did is I pulled up our, our drafts of for the South America stuff and read through them. And it was just like, it was exactly what I had always wanted in preparing to go to a place I'd yeah. never been before. This, that's what I, where I usually start, but there's often just remarkably little info about habitats in a place you're going. You know, some, some kind of field guides, wildlife field guides have some of this info. Some have none at all. And, and I always start there. I don't even look at the birds or the wildlife or anything else. I just, I look at the habitats. And, and so I actually went straight to our book kind of a cool experience yeah definitely i mean that's an area of the world where i really don't know a whole lot about the habitats i've never been in the the chaco seco or in, in monte or kind of these drier scrubbier southern cone habitats and i wouldn't know where to start and now i know where to start <laughs> once you start to understand the habitats then you can start looking at range maps for birds or mammals or whatever and start kind of making sense of them and picking up the patterns more. Like to me, it's, it really is the way to start with in studying for a totally new places. What are the habitats? Um, and this is, it's actually another thing that I hope to do more in this book too, is talk a little bit more about like nodes of endemism within habitats as well. Cause that's the other dynamic is that, as you said in Mexico, like different ranges often have different endemics. So it might be the same habitat, but then there's some biogeographic divide that produces different species and different ranges. And then that's actually a whole nother volume in this series that some of us are working on is a whole volume about biogeography, which I just find incredibly exciting. It's going to be a very tough book to do, but I think it's going to be amazing. It's going to sort of take stuff that was mostly confined to textbooks and very technical papers and stuff and make it accessible for for anybody exactly you can have a like a five page appendix of mountain ranges of the world and like oh, okay that's where the name like rinzori Turakau comes from or usambara or you know like all these familiar names that are tacked onto lots of different animals well phil will we're just about out of time, but uh, last one last question for you is just whether you have any advice about uh, visiting any of these habitats in terms of people actually wanting to, to get out into pine oak woodland or uh, boggy tundra or whatever. Usual things, uh, wear, wear high boots, bring bug spray, uh, that sort of thing. Um, one thing I'd definitely say for the, the short grass prairie is pay attention to the prevailing wind direction before you get out of the car because when you park uh, facing with the wind 
and it rips the door off a $60,000 pickup truck, your boss will not be happy with you. <laughs> it's a purely hypothetical uh, situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, those sound like pretty tough conditions for uh, birding in any case. So y- your, your best strategy might actually be to stay in the car and try another day. Or find a really tall cow pie to hide behind. <laughs> if only you were the size of a horned lark. Uh, if only. You've reminded me of uh, the wind in that habitat can just be insane. And I, I did a, a bird survey once up actually in Pawnee grasslands in Colorado, which was the site you mentioned for, for that habitat. And it was weird because at dawn, it was dead still. And it was just glorious, you know, it's like beautiful light and calm. And there's just the sky is full of horned larks and there's dozens of Western meadowlarks. And this survey area was loaded with uh, thick-billed longspurs. And so they, they do these little display flights, right? They go like straight up and they sing on the wing. And, and, and as the morning went on, the birds were still there and the birds were still singing but the winds were had went from zero miles an hour to like sixty miles an hour, and and I could see like the 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 long spurs were basically they were still fighting their way up into the sky and trying to sing and display, but they would like battle their way up and then they would just get rammed into the ground by the wind, and the the triangles that were being formed by these the little long spur flights were just getting more and more extreme. As you know, they would they would get blown like sixty yards. They'd they'd go up like ten feet and they just get slammed into the ground like seventy, eighty, ninety feet away. Um, it was it was really quite a quite a spectacle, and it was just amazing that they still had the will to keep singing. It was like I think I would have just given it up and you know waited until the next dawn, but it's just so full of hormones and just short breeding season, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Uh... It's time to scrap the Beaufort scale for wind, and we can just use the length of Longsford triangles on, <laughs> on survey sheets. I love it. So that's all for this week. The sound that we're going to close out with is a lesser prairie chicken, which um, Phil talked about a little bit. All these very strange little vocalizations, very cool birds, certainly some of the, the birds I'm most keen to get back to see. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, Phil. It's been great. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll catch you all next time.